Hello dear friends and welcome to The Natural High, which is of course a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week I'm delighted to have the fascinating Brent Balm on the show. Brent evidently hasn't wasted a moment of his action-packed life. He studied for his postgraduate degree in Rome before serving as a Catholic priest. He's an archaeologist in the Near East for 13 years. He's a certified alcohol and drug counsellor and a certified clinical hypnotherapist. He also has more intuitive gifts, which we delve into in great detail. More recently, Brent has developed holographic memory resolution, an emotional reframing technique which integrates the latest breakthroughs in neurophysiology to help resolve chronic pain, anxiety disorders, illness and trauma. He believes that many to most of us have some kind of locked-in trauma which inhibits our lives and can manifest as chronic pain, depression, anxiety or anger. So physical ailments in our bodies can be a result of trauma suffered in our past that we may not even know about. Brent is one of the more eloquent and studied people that I've had the good fortune to speak to. As usual, at times, I'm so out of my depth that I'm almost reaching land in the next country. But I found this conversation so compelling that I've committed to doing a personal therapy session with him in the coming weeks. Brent is also a very kind human who I know will fascinate you as much as he did me. You can find out more about Brent and reach out to him by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash Brent Balm, all one word, and his surname is spelled B-A-U-M. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review wherever you get your pods. Thanks for your support and enjoy the show. The Natural High. Hello. Hi, Oliver. How are you doing, Brent? Good, and yourself? I'm very well indeed. I'm sorry that I'm a few minutes late. No, no problem. I'm running a little bit behind myself. I was dealing with some insurance things and so on. So we're good. Well, um, we have a two and a half month old baby, a baby girl. Aww, cute. I know, I know. Um, and for our first child and my wife, my wonderful wife, she does the night shift and then we swap over early oh, no. morning. And uh, I saw her sleep. Normally she gets up about 8.30, but I saw mm-hmm. her sleeping there and I just, I didn't have the heart to wake her. I'm so grateful you've given up some time to talk about the fascinating causes that you're immersed in in your life. I must say, when I I look at uh, your achievements, I feel like a a real bum. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I mean, you're talking to some pretty high-end people from what I've seen, so I'm impressed. You found my friend Dominic, so he and I have known each other for many years, and uh, I think I'm page 119 in his latest book or something like that. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I've read his book, mm-hmm. and I first heard about you through Dominic Aversa as you did some therapeutic work with him, I believe, at some stage. Which we Correct. Were- he mentions that, so it's okay. He said it's okay if I talk about that. So that's Fantastic. Good, yeah. And we will. We will delve in for, to talk about it as, you know, as much as you're comfortable. Um, that alone fascinated me when he told me about that. But then you sent me your bio and the scope of, of your work and, and your productivity through your life and your career is stunning. So I guess the best way to do this is just to talk sort of chronologically, if that's okay with you, and take me through the various stages of your life and your career. But the first thing I wanted to, to find out is, is where you're coming from. So I think you're in Arizona, is that right? That is correct. I'm in Tucson, Arizona. Tell me something about, tell my, my audience something about Tucson, Arizona. 
Um, well, I love Tucson. I was brought here originally as director of a uh, clinical director of a treatment center, first in New Mexico, and then they merged with Tucson in January of ninety, uh, January of ninety four. And I love the desert. You know, I did archaeology in Israel for about 13 years. So the first time I ever flew into Tucson, I was in Albuquerque previously. And I love New Mexico. My heart is in New Mexico in a way. And I have, I have property, 100, 103 acres in New Mexico, actually. Wow. Yeah, that I, at 8,000 feet elevation with Bureau of Land Management around me. So I will not ever see another house probably in front of me. But I um, wow. hope to put a house up there within the next few years. I've been camping for years out there to kind of recharge from the, the trauma work. Mm. And I love New Mexico. As a child, I went with an uncle who was an amateur archaeologist through Texas and New Mexico looking for arrowheads. Uh, at that time, it wasn't a federal offense, you know, so we could find objects and arrowheads. And I found a couple of arrowheads and things. But I was fascinated with Native American culture. Anyway, love New Mexico. But uh, when I flew into Tucson for the first time, when they were merging with Tucson, I was like, oh, look, it looks like Tel Aviv, but no water, you know, kind <laughs> of a thing. So I was like, because I loved Israel. I love digging in Israel. And my great grandfather was Jewish. So we have quite a mixture of Jewish ancestry. And then uh, great grandfather was kicked by a horse, died from the concussion. Great grandmother remarried Catholic. And so we flipped from Jewish to Catholic. And now I'm pretty non-denominational in my work. I, I treat everybody. And uh, I have a, a godchild that married Jewish, actually. And uh, so it's kind of cool. So, you know, my work is not denominational. When I flew into Tucson, I was like, oh, it's so green here compared to, you know, some of the desert areas. But it's lovely. And, uh, and I'm part of the time out at Miraval, which is a little higher elevation and anyway, I, I just love desert. I've always loved desert climates. And we're the uh, city, I think, practically the city in the country with the most sunlight per year. We only get like five, six full days of rain a year. Incredible. And so we're like the golf course capital of the world, one of them. And uh, biking, cycling, of course, cyclists love it. Uh, it does get hot in the summers, but I think with global warming and so on, there's more moisture in the air. So we haven't seen the, the hideous continuous temperatures. The first summer I moved here, was a hundred days straight of over a hundred degrees in the summer. And I was like, what did I move into here? Yeah. So, uh, but it hasn't been that way since it's been quite, quite uh, different. And so, cold in the evenings, I assume. That's right. Low humidity. So I grew up in Louisiana where after I lived here for a year, I flew back to new Orleans, Baton Rouge and um, where I came from. And I stepped off the plane and I'm like, what is this water thing, moisture thing on my head here? You know, it's like, I was like, oh, wow, look, I'm perspiring. I was like, oh, wow, I haven't really perspired in a year mm. outside. It just evaporates off your skin here in Arizona. So you don't really sweat your perspiring. You don't appreciate it until you come from a, a humid climate and you're like, wow, this is great. So when the sun goes down, it's very, very cool mm. at night. Even on hot days, it cools in the evening. Which is so merciful, like, I'm sure. A nice thing to look exactly. forward to in the evening. So you get the best yes, of both yes. worlds. So you're from Baton Rouge. Tell me about your childhood, where you grew up and what sort of childhood you had. It sounds as if there was a, a, quite a lot of religion, uh, a religious thread going through your life from early age. Well, there was, you know, and my father was very, you know, in a little Catholic town in Louisiana, the southern part of Louisiana tends to be very Catholic. It's very old traditions. The Archdiocese of New Orleans and that area has been very Catholic for a long time. 
And uh, yeah, so it was a pretty, pretty Catholic area. My, my mother was a very gifted, empathic, intuitive. She wouldn't have said that. She just thought she was a nice, you know, loving woman, but she had abilities. And my father was more traditional Catholic. We own the oldest German. And to this day, there's still Bombs Bakery in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the oldest German bakery business. So I tell my clients it's a miracle. I didn't develop a significant eating disorder or something <laughs> with all the, the good baked goods and so on. But I uh, grew up in Louisiana, very Catholic area where religion and priests are highly esteemed. And so uh, as a child, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. And then my best friend laughed and said, my, so my dad, you want to be an archaeologist after traveling with the uncle that summer and winning, winning first prize in the science fair based on a Native American project where I displayed arrowheads and tomahawks and things of that sort. And he said, my dad laughed and said, if you dig more than three feet in Louisiana, you're going to hit water. And it's going to be a very short career. So it's true in Port Allen, across on the west bank of the Mississippi, um, I grew up right on the river. And we actually grew up below sea level. So the levees held back the rivers, but there were times when the rivers rose very high and a couple of times overflowed into different areas. But uh, I liked it. It's, you know, the land of uh, nature and fishing and things of that sort. So I grew up with all of that around me. And... Um, you know, I love Louisiana. It was great. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure the archaeology really fed your imagination where you were young as well and shaped your life. But tell me, if you can, give me an example of your mother's intuitive abilities. You've said so much interesting stuff, and that really piqued my interest as well. Well, sure. You know, she was very empathic. Now, the word empath you know, means to feel with another person. And I don't think she would have said anything much about that. But I give you a couple of examples. So I was in a car accident. I just turned my car over to my a friend of mine, a classmate, when we were driving to Houston for college. And we were in a little fender bender. And I called her about three hours later. I didn't want to worry her. It wasn't bad, but we bumped into somebody in the rain and somebody hit us from behind. And uh, so I called her and said, I was in a car accident. You know, it was about 6.30 when I called her about three hours later. And I said, we need a ride. And she said, yes, I know it happened at 3.23. And I was like, how do you know that? She says, I went ice cold. My body, you know, felt cold. Um, your name came, I felt fear. I got flooded with fear. Your name came into my head. So I wrote the time down, said a prayer for you. And I've been waiting for you to call. Wow. And she did that with every child in the family. So my oldest sister, Peggy, had a miscarriage. My mother jumped out of the chair, ran half a block down the street and helped her get to the hospital. She did lose the baby, but my mother had had three children. Then she lost six miscarriages in a row. And then I came along when she was 42 and my sister at 46. So she knew what a miscarriage felt like. And so she could use the information to help people. She jumped up, ran down the street, helped my sister get to the hospital. Uh, when my oldest brother broke his ankle in the veteran's home uh, where he was living, uh, half his life actually, um, she jumped out of the chair, ran to the phone and said, called them and said, what just happened to my son? And they were like, who called you? They're not supposed to call until medical attention is provided, you know, and the ambulance is on the way to take him for x-rays. They're supposed to eliminate heart attack, stroke, TIA, then call the family. And she beat the ambulance to the building, which is usually three to five minutes. So she was pretty accurate. I mean, she could feel when these things happened and use it to intervene. So I think she put fire under them to respond more quickly. And then when she died in 1983, I was in graduate school in Rome, Italy, actually at the time. And I sat bolt upright in bed from a sound sleep, which I do not do. I don't just wake up instantly. 
uh, I called it waking up from the inside. Something woke me up internally. And I went from completely asleep to completely awake. And I remember looking out the window of Rome, looking west and saying, uh-oh, something's just happened. And sure enough, when they got to the operator several hours later, that's the moment when my mother hemorrhaged and died in my bedroom in Louisiana, actually. And so I felt the moment of her death. And I've had a couple of things like that happen since then. So I, I define myself as kind of a memory empath that when trauma or memories come up in people like my mother, I feel it physically if, if they give me permission to access. I don't, thank goodness it doesn't run all the time. But um, given permission, I can scan your body or access information. Like when COVID hit, I was like, well, I've always worked face to face with my clients for the most part. I'll do follow-ups by phone. But when COVID hit, I visualized the first phone caller. I've done 450 sessions, phone sessions since COVID hit. So I flipped my practice to phone, visualized him in front of me, scanned him. And at two sites above his head and behind his neck, I was nauseated, which usually means that there's a concussion memory. And sure enough, I asked him, I said, have you had any concussions? He said, yeah, I had a football injury to the top of my head and a whiplash to the back of my neck. And the minute we reframe the memory using the techniques that I developed, my nausea was gone, his nausea was gone, his head felt lighter, his head felt lighter. And if there were migraines or headaches that had followed, that usually subsides as well. Wow. So I define myself as kind of a memory empath in that I pick up unresolved trauma or memory from people, the easiest being the more violent things like, you know, injuries to your head or falls or falling down the stairs or, you know, being shot or hurt, things like that. Those are easy to feel. They're very dense energies in the human body, which is where I kind of talked about going from, you know, five sensory sort of bodily sensory bound awareness into higher consciousness is where we're evolving nowadays. This is amazing. Um, can, this is amazing. Yeah, I train therapists. I train therapists and people to do what I do. If you put your hand on, you're already doing it as the daddy. You're putting your hand, you're supporting the neck and spine of your, your daughter, you said, uh, little girl. So when you put your hand on that neck, shoulder, C7 point in the back, you're running energy from your hand into the dorsal channel of the spine which handles all the pain neurotransmitters. And when you do that to an adult or a child or a teenager, you'll often see their eyelids flicker a little bit. It induces an alpha theta brainwave, which allows your child to access information, feel safe. Um, when I put my hand on that point, people can generally talk about their memories more easily. We actually measured it and did quantitative EEGs on it and found that it induces an alpha deep theta deep delta state um, and so people can access uh, memories they normally don't have access to without reliving anything. I listened to an interview the other day with Jane, the wonderful Jane Goodall, and she was talking about how mm -hmm. her mother knew the moment when her son died in the war. Like she knew it, mm -hmm. she, she, mm -hmm. could, she could feel it as it happened. Like as the world becomes ever more, you know, immersed in science, how does that tally with the remote, that remote intuition? Like you, you're talking about physically touching people, but what about when it happens remotely? You're a thoughtful person. How do you tally that in layman's terms? Well, you know, I think the bottom line is, if you go back to physics, Einstein, space and time are kind of illusions. I believe that there is one consciousness or unified field that connects all living things. Hmm. And that there really isn't a reason why we can't pick up if, if, you know, if consciousness transcends time and space in any matter whatsoever, hmm. 
And now we're finding, you know, particle on one side of the universe reacts to, you know, it's like um, twinning particles and things of that sort, mirror neurons, things of that sort, that we're finding that we do have connections that transcend the five senses that go beyond time and space. Well, I think you don't have to be there to love your mother, you know, to feel a, a kind of a connection. Mm. But I've had so many cases and the lectures that I do, I mean, raise your hand if you've ever felt the death of someone or known that something was wrong with your child. I think those that we're most closely bonded to, we have the easiest empathic connection. But I think we're moving into the age of empathy that as we resolve these dense, heavy energies of trauma in the body mind, we realize we're all connected to each other. You know, I can feel your pain. I can feel your headache. If I go to scan somebody and my hands hurt immediately, I'm like over the top of the head. I'm like, do you have a migraine or a headache? Oh, I had one yesterday. I have the residue. I was like, well, I can feel it as a memory. If I can feel it, it's something that can be reframed or healed. It can be resolved. I don't feel purely physiological, genetic things. So, you know, but I believe we all have a natural degree of empathy for people around us. We often know when something's wrong with the person next to us. And, you know, the senses, the deception is the, the eyes we know give us the five, you know, the body gives us the five senses. But we're so much more than that. They measured the human energy field, the heart electromagnetic field of the heart. I think the heart math technology has found that they can measure the heart's electromagnetic fields miles away if there's no major interference between the heart and the instrument of measurement. You know, we can pick that up miles away. So we know that the human energy field is vast, is connected. You know, so there is science to support all of that now and that we're, we're looking at what that's about. So I think we're much more interconnected. I think that the being bound to the five senses through trauma makes you think that you're over there, I'm over here and there's no connection. Mm -hmm. But that's not really true with with media and mass communication like you and I are having a live digital conversation right now. And my voice transmits a frequency which connects to you, your voice transmits a frequency which connects to me. And I, when I started doing the long distance healing, realizing that my mother could feel this. So I have to admit that I beat science by about a decade in, in my empathy. And then 10 years after I started doing this, scientists proved your brain doesn't know the difference between the original event and the, I mean, yeah, the original trauma and the memory of the trauma. That when you access it, you go back into the same physiological pain, emotions, tension in your body as the original event. So in a way, you're trancing outside of the present moment into space time and feeling people and experiences that happened in the past but if your conscious mind is only 5% and the 95% is your subconscious, which stores the memories, there are times I think sometimes when we're living more in the past and the 95% than we're living in our conscious mm. existence, you know? That's so, you know, it's not only true for the world, it's true inside the body. We don't always stay present, you know, to what's happening. Sometimes we're reliving the past at different moments. Absolutely fascinating. I really want to drill down into your into your current vocation, I suppose you could describe it. But um, you say, you, you're striking quite a positive tone. You're talking about how we're, we're moving now into an age of higher consciousness. Um, but, I've, but there's part of me that feels we're more disconnected than ever. Um, do you sense that? And do you think that maybe we shun this, 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 this oneness, this connectivity because of that charge of science, which, which makes us sort of look away from things that are maybe a little bit more hedistic. Well, you know, 
we're gaining, we're getting done a lot of research now. So we're moving into science is kind of substantiating these connections and these types of relationships. We're doing quantitative EGs on people with their memories to see that, yes, that is correct. You know, while there was an impact to your head, the instrumentation is showing from the past where the, your boyfriend pushed you and shoved you into the wall and you had a concussion, that point is identifiable. We can see where consciousness imprinted in the body. And already we had that coming up, you know, so we're actually doing the science that shows how consciousness functions in the body mind and how the body mind creates memory and stores memory intact. So, uh, you know, truth, science is truth. So anything that moves us in the path of truth will move us forward ultimately. But I think you're right. There is a, you know, there, Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolutions. And I cite that in my, my article I just sent you. Um, he says that sometimes the paradigm, the new healing paradigm can't shift until the old regime or the old paradigm has literally died out. So what we're seeing is a transition from, so what I talk about when I talk about my trauma work, one thing I've learned is that trauma creates the ego and the ego I define as like the archetypal composite of all of your unresolved traumas. So the ego is created like this big I that doesn't want to go forward in time, that is self-centered, is defensive, it's afraid of moving forward, it's going to die if it goes another millisecond forward, is very invested in staying in the present moment, is sensory bound, it doesn't believe in anything outside of itself, it's very focused on survival. And we've been that way for 7.9 million years to some extent on this planet, that's proven. There's a book called uh, Forbidden Archaeology, which suggests we might have been on the planet for 140 million years. But all of that proof and data, except for a fossilized footprint, sandal print near a dinosaur bone, you know, we may have actually been here a lot longer. Either way, we have survived because we have the ability to pause. I think we've completely underestimated our power in that we have the ability to pause consciousness itself at a traumatic moment. The body does it unconsciously, automatically. And so we spend a lot of time in living in that, that holographic space, that projective space where um, it doesn't really exist anymore. But in the 95%, if you believe you're still in the car accident, your neck will still hurt in present time, even if you have already healed. So they call it phantom pain. Well, now we have scientific yep. terms for it. Now we have holographic memory or holonomic memory in the body. So if the, uh, if you're the, the body of the memory in the memory, I got a client that was surgically operated on the Johns Hopkins to stop kidney pain. And they severed the nerves and the pain was still there. Wow. And they're like, how is this possible? You know, like we, we've done five surgeries on you. The pain is still there. You should not be feeling any pain. Are you in pain? Yes. They published this case in the American Journal of Kidney Medicine. And she came back to me after I saw her after the fourth surgery encouraged a session. She declined after the fifth, after the fifth surgery. She's like, well, they implanted a TENS unit. It's not overriding the pain completely. They've severed the nerves. The pain is still there. So then she went into a session with me and we just created safety, created a safe scene. She breathed the colors of her, which we can all do. Breathe the colors of your safe scene through your body to release anxiety. The colors, by the way, you see for your memories are not my colors. They are different frequencies. This is fascinating. This is how I was introduced to you through Dominic. Now, I'm going to, expl I'm going to explain my understanding of it in such a basic and naive way. But I, I was fascinated because he suggested that, uh, and what you've just said is that um, our ego comes from our trauma. Does that mean that 
Or, mm. So basically your work is unlocking trauma from an earlier part of your life, which you, which may be dormant. You may not even be aware of it, but you can't Correct. But your suggestion or maybe your work entails, it involves the idea that you can't live a full life and unlock all of your potential until you uh, isolate, identify and unlock some trauma from your past. Well, we, you know, as we have both collective trauma and personal trauma, and yes, you are correct. Okay. I believe that trauma is encoded in the 95% unsubconscious and your 5%, the latest research, conscious mind is 5%, but derives its quantum power from our true creative potential, but with the permission of the subconscious. So if your subconscious is locked in, don't trust, don't feel, don't go forward, mm. you know, don't do this, we're going to act from the 95%. Right. And we're still frozen in consciousness. So yes, it is true that if the uh, if there's trauma in our past, Gershon Kaufman at Michigan State said, shame, the, the alienation of self from self creates a primary affect. So trauma is a dissociation. It's a split in consciousness. Part of you freezes to protect yourself. Part of you continues on and makes it, you know, uh, in time to talk to Oliver in a podcast. Okay, so, but part of you is still frozen at that millisecond of encoding. And once that is stored and consciousness itself freezes with all of the sensory data, all of the memories, all of the affect, you can set a conscious intention in your 5% to go forward. But if you don't have the percent, the consent of the 95%, and if the 95% is still defending, it believes in protecting you, unless you prove safety, you're probably going to manifest from the 95% rather than the, the 5%. You know, Gary Zukov says we, we've been creating mostly unconsciously in our evolution from our, our beginnings, earliest beginnings. And only now, I believe it's exciting because we're moving into conscious creation, conscious manifestation, and we're learning how to unlock the power of the subconscious in order to go forward. So yes, our biggest obstacle is what we have in our own bodies right. and ourselves stored from memory. Mm. And um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of neglect or abuse that you suffered on a personal level earlier in your yeah. life. It can be collective trauma. So something that has happened to us as humans collectively, which has, which has affected our psyche without us really understanding or analyzing it. Right. I think, you know, there is a collective unconscious and there is a, a trauma that we feel. I think we've, I think over time we become more and more sensory bound in a way, right. less, maybe less connected to nature, mm. less less meditating, you know, less, you know, spending time in nature and regenerating. So we spend more and more time reliving our trauma states. I think there is a kind of a, I don't know what the word would be, kind of a intensification or becoming denser in our energy fields. Like when I did archaeology before the, the calcul before the early Bronze Age, we were actually very creative as a species. It's a calcolithic period, a transition period between the Stone Ages and Bronze Ages that had painted frescoes and had spiritual paintings and the biggest wall around a city was about a meter high. And then urbanism and quote civilization began and the wartime, you know, attacking people and getting together to conquer. And so suddenly there's a need for defenses by the early bronze age, like 3500 BC or whatever, early bronze one in the Middle East. And they start building defensive fortifications and we start losing our connection to nature, spending more time and energy goes into defense 
and things of that sort. And I think there is, I think we have, have become collectively, we just sort of assume <clears throat> certain kinds of fears. We inherit certain things from the imitation of our parents. We learn children, you know, spontaneously when they're born, learn languages very quickly. But once we start getting fear or shame, John Bradshaw once said we have, most of us have some sense of shame, like a little splitting of self from self when we're shamed about crying or eating or touching something or whatever. You know, we have shame by the age of two and we don't even hit moral development until seven or eight. <clears throat> if we're already personally and collectively, you're correct. We have trauma in our prehistories. We have trauma in our collective histories. We imitate parents that are acting from a somewhat restricted, traumatized affect. I have a lot of clients whose parents were wounded before the age of four and who were narcissistic and very self-centered. So they don't get the mirroring, the unconditional love through the eyes of the parents. You know, they're trapped in their own uh, low self-esteem because they're imitating and recording their internal language and processing from parents who don't have those skills, you know? So like you said, your parenting to your little, you know, child, your newborn, you know, is like giving unconditional love and being present. And, you know, uh, they're learning language. They hear your words and eventually they'll speak with the same accent you speak with when they talk, you know, they learn that way. So yes, we take in a lot of trauma through as an infant, as a young child through imitation, we have a collective unconscious. When I work with people on a positive level, I can tell you that People know what colors mean. Like if a child draws a picture in art therapy of physical or sexual abuse, they all automatically go to blacks and reds. No love, no light, no safety, black, minimal, anger, violence, red. So what is it? And I see there are other colors, frequencies that have collective unconscious, recognizable values that we have. I was a consultant to the gentleman who's the architect for the master plan for redesigning um, the VA hospitals, you know, and the PTSD programs. And he was asking me about colors. What colors do we use to make the vets feel safe? What colors do we use to make them feel protected? You know, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's a lot of we, wood colors, earth tones always ground us, make us feel safe, natural woods. Um, pewter, silver, grow, you know, gold, metallics are very protective. It's like a knight in armor from the middle ages. So when you need to feel safe, uh, a client I worked with yesterday I used pewter to reframe sexual abuse memories from childhood. And she said, I see gray. Is that a good color? I said, is it pewter gray? She says, yes. And I'm like, that's perfect. I said, you're like a knight in armor. And she smiled. And I'm like, there you go. You're restoring your sexual boundaries from when you were violated as a child by these relatives. And you're safe. Whenever we use pewter, it's like your knight in armor. You're back in your medieval. So it's an ancient you know, association we make with certain frequencies. But when I did archaeology in Israel, I did a research project with Tom Seaver, NASA's archaeologist, the summer of 84. The diocese, uh, I was a priest at the time, newly ordained, but um, <clears throat> they thought I was crazy. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this archaeology thing? But one thing I learned from that project was that the colors you and I see for our memories are unique projected frequencies. That the colors you see for your memories are not standard frequencies. So when you visualize, even though we say, well, the trauma, the abuse was red and black. When I say what colors would do you visualize in the corrected image? What frequencies are in safe scene that we're missing from the original. And the only person that can put that in your system for you is yourself. So 
So I really empower people to heal themselves. I've never been more excited about the human person. Like you have white light. There is a part, the bottom line of this work is very simple. Every human being is connected to some type of a source, whether you believe in God or the universe, unified field theory, the big bang actually is a big flash, a billion degree plasma burst that created the universe. And now we're all part of this expanding holographic projection. Michael Talbot in the holographic universe talked about that. But that means you and I are a seven, seven color, big screen holographic TV, creating our experience every day. And when we freeze with certain frequencies missing, all we need to learn to do is to love ourselves and put in the missing frequencies to restore us to white light. And if we do it in a timely enough manner, oftentimes migraines go away, panic attacks go away. We, we heal from illnesses if we do it soon enough. If not, and we've had illnesses, at least maybe we can stop its progression, things of that sort. But that means there's a part of you that is connected to source, whatever that is at this moment. And, you know, a lot of the mystics. Does the individual choose their source or is it involuntary? I think it probably, I think we assign a definition to Mm. whatever that is, Mm. but I'm not here to ever impose on a person what what you think that source might be. Mm. Um, For people in 12-step programs, anything greater than their addiction, higher power, something greater than themselves is what they turn to. I did a spirituality program in a psych facility And I don't judge that what that is, but I do know that I can prove to you that if we go to reframe your memory for at least the millisecond, level one trauma is a freezing for a millisecond, level two is a pattern. So for the millisecond where you froze, if you can focus on that for just a moment, there's a part of you that knows what should have happened and knows the frequencies that should have been there, which means there's a part of you that knows white light that knows all of the colors and all of the frequencies. It's just that there's not any human being I've ever met on this planet that stays in that space continuously. None of us stay in white light. I mean, I encourage people, especially in the light of the past year, meditate, do your yoga, do breathing exercises, and for heaven's sakes, breathe colors. Breathe the colors that you're attracted to. 50% of the time, a person will walk into my office wearing the color they will use to heal their most traumatic memory. But what if you gravitate towards black and red? They can be good colors. Black can be calm, elegant, absolute. It's an art deco color. You know, Mm. I used to joke. I said, as a, as a Catholic priest, I said, I used to look good in black. That's why I chose black. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. But you know, I, uh, I'm an olive complexion. So I do look good in black. Mm. You know, I still wear black and red is power, passion, energy. You know, it's interesting because in Egypt, when they did archeology, span the first mirrors to look at yourself and mirror white light, was actually polished obsidian. So it was black when it's polished. If you look at yourself in a black obsidian mirror, Mm. you'll see your face, you'll see your reflection. So the first mirrors that amplify or mirror white light could even be black, a shiny black. So when my sister, my younger sister ran the program for deaf blind, we have uh, several families in Baton Rouge, Louisiana with Usher's syndrome, where you're born deaf and then you go blind. And so it's a Helen Keller thing. You have to sign the language in their hands. They've lost sight and hearing. So they have to feel the words or feel the language. They have Braille computers nowadays that they can touch, touch, communicate with each other throughout the country through Braille computer systems. But um, when I did the technique on five of her clients at their national gathering one year, it was fascinating because some of them reframed with black. And I was like, why in the world would a deaf blind person see black as a positive color? And it's because as you're going blind, you're already deaf. And as you're losing your eyesight, 
If you try to do sign language in front of a white or bright background, the, the blonde, you know, the tan hand, the sign language can't be read. But if you put it against a black background, that black restores communication. So I say now that whatever colors you use within your personal history are personal to your use of color. And I don't judge. I like if I had a client yesterday use black to wipe out, just just negate a really awful negative memory and then came through later with another positive color. But yes, black can be positive. So there are no bad colors, though, no bad frequencies. But, you know, the colors that are personal to you and your healing process. It's one thing understanding the trauma, but then how can you know what's the healing part of it? Is it changing the colors? Well, here's what happened. So a guy from New Zealand, in one of your questions, like, who are your favorite role models and so on? Mm. Well, there was a psychologist from New Zealand who was of Maori descent. And I just discovered actually from my ancestry, 23, I'm part Native American as well, which my mother always said, but um, we have some healing ability with viruses and things like that. But anyway, maybe another discussion. So anyway, uh, this guy, David Grove was of Maori descent, one of the oldest native cultures on the planet. Which believe, who believe in healing people from within themselves. And he identified a 10-question tracking technique to locate where, if something happened to trauma in your life, where was it stored iconically in your body? Because for every trauma that occurs, the body uses the holographic nature of consciousness, where the fragment contains the whole, to take the whole traumatic event and reduce it to a lump in your throat. So he was very innovative. He found that 10 question, kind of nine question, 10 question tracking technique to locate the icon. He also came up with a term, T minus one, trauma minus a millisecond. Mm. And he observed, which I've confirmed 150,000 memories with people, that when we're overwhelmed, your nervous system not only goes into slow motion, it'll slow the movie down before a car accident or an impact, but it actually backs up a millisecond what we call T minus one, I think it's from the space shuttle, T minus 10 and counting, but T minus one at a millisecond prior to overwhelm, your body always backs up the movie, takes a picture, freezes consciousness itself and all of the sensory data, feelings, everything. Um, and if we are quantum beings, the ability to freeze consciousness is an immense, unbelievable act. I mean, it's incredible. So when we can pause, we have the gift of pausing. Anything that overwhelms us is done subconsciously and automatically to protect you, stores it like the icon on a computer because it's holographic. We can store it as a single fragment. So the whole traumatic event becomes the handprint on your face, the lump in your throat, the knot in your stomach, the weight on your shoulders, the knife in your heart. So where we feel it the most and feel the, the threat, the boundary violation, which is what a trauma is, the body freezes a fragment often at that site. So Grove is very clever. He identified that millisecond and a tracking technique to help you think about your body. So I call this mindfulness with respect to your body as a memory, because your body is 100% memory. The old debate was how much is nature, how much is nurture. And now we know even if you have the genetics, it sometimes take a takes a trauma to activate the BRCA gene. So the genes are not a death sentence necessarily. It often takes the stress activation of the gene from a trauma for it to express itself. So if we can use color and go back to those events and deactivate the stressors, mm -hmm. 
then even our genetics is not as much of a threat or a problem. And it might even evolve, calm down and change over time. But the colors you see for your memories are unique to your computer, unique to your perception. And so, yes, uh, he identified that millisecond of encoding. The minute I heard it, it was like a lightning bolt struck. I'm like, that's why so many of my clients in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was getting, I had three other degrees, but I was getting licensed as an addictions counselor in, because uh, I like the fact that it had a spirituality component to it, mm -hmm. spiritual component without being, you know, overly religious, but it was non-denomination, it was spiritual. And um, as I was getting certified as an addictions counselor, it explained why some clients would come in and they would talk to me in their 5% moral rational mind and tell me about their trauma, but they would come back a month or two later and forget they'd done that and repeat the same event and get tearful, like they were reliving it all over again. And I'm like, something's wrong. We're reliving, reliving, we're talking, we're doing talk therapy, we're talking about the event and we're triggering it, but it's not discharging from the body mind, from the body. And right at that moment, providentially, whatever, I came across the work of David Grove and he's like, well, if you don't talk to the millisecond in the subconscious where it froze, you're destined to relive it, to re-experience it. You're destined for it to keep coming back up as your body saying, hello, get me out of here. I'm stuck. And we didn't know back then that your subconscious is 95%. I mean, when I, we were first developing our, you know, addiction, addictionology and so on, up until the 50s, they thought, just say no, stop drinking alcohol. Don't do it. You know, uh, quit, quit your pot smoking. Don't eat so much. And when they shamed them, they ended up accelerating the addiction. It didn't ease it, it made it worse. So in the 50s, we shifted from a moral failure model. So there's been a huge paradigm shift already in consciousness. What we used to think we could just control by willpower, you know, has been reduced. The conscious will is now 5% and your subconscious is 95%. And if it's still active, you know, you can say, oh, I'm not gonna feel fear about this, but if the trauma is still intact, when that is triggered, you're going to feel that original feeling. So to answer your question kind of circuitously, you know, that when we heal the originating event, then we discharge, we, we're unblocked. We're back in the flow of consciousness. You know, we're back in present moment. Wow. Um, I don't feel traumatized. I feel happy in my life, but I also know that I have an ego and I'm constantly working at that. Do mm -hmm. I and do we all, could we all benefit from this kind of therapy? Do you think it's it's necessary in order to, yeah, to really unlock your potential and unlock your full happiness and contentedness in life? Well, in a way, yes. I think that we, you know, I don't work just with trauma. Now, the, now you're thinking traditional trauma, like murder, rape, oh. incest, physical, sexual abuse. I didn't have much of that either myself, but I did have a father that was Asperger's. And so he didn't make eye contact. He didn't talk. He didn't show affection very much. You know, he could give you a little money, take you fishing. He was a very kind man, but, you know, he didn't express emotion. He didn't do feelings. And that's like a level two trauma pattern. And so I didn't have level one overt. So nobody beat me, hit me, was ever violent. In fact, I, I shied away from loud, noisy voices because my father was quiet, very silent, you know. So in a sense, Earth is, my latest book, it's called Earth is Surviving Trauma School Earth, which I say, if you're born and you had parents, you got trauma, okay? This is the way it's going to work. Now, sometimes it's through imitation of a parent. Sometimes there's a little shyness. 
which indicates a shame issue or a feeling of shame. But everybody has had moments when they've been teased or bullied or some kind of encoding. Now, some people have a lot less than others. Some people have very fortunate childhoods and maybe the trauma isn't childhood. Maybe it's the shock of seeing something violent. People invade the Capitol building or something like, oh my goodness, I never thought I'd see a day like this. And people that have, haven't had a lot of trauma really could go into shock and be devastated by things that they have never been exposed to. But on earth, there's always something going on. So whether, you know, um, David Cheek, one of Milton Erickson, the father of modern hypnosis, one of his protégés said, stress causes a freezing, a spontaneous state of self-hypnosis to protect you from overwhelm. So when we're overly stressed, we freeze. When we're overly anxious, we freeze. When we go through small, bump your head as a child, you cry. I pick up a lot of those things in the head. When I scan an adult's head, I'm like, what happened to your head over here? Oh, I forgot. I fell and hit a heater and cut my head open, had to have stitches as a child. They think I had a concussion. I'm like, we need to reframe that. So level one is a single moment of freezing. And everybody has little traumas, moments of encoding as a child you know, some more than others. Um, but we also have some level twos. Like my father was Asperger's. I had a brother with brain damage from birth. I had a mother with breast cancer for nine years before she passed. That's three level two traumas from people that I love. So trauma isn't just what happens in your body. The image you're looking at right now, maybe if you're looking at your child, your daughter, on the retinas of your eyes, she's upside down. And inside your physiology, she's right side up. I read this. So yeah. we... Yeah, we create, we create that movie, that quantum creative movie inside ourselves. So when we see people suffer, we see people hurt, we see people being violent, we're actually admitting that inside our physiology in a way. So I have some people, their traumas, they watch their brother break their leg playing football. And at that moment, they felt pain in their leg. You know, because why? Why would they feel that? Because the imaging process is occurring inside your physiology. And so we often feel the pain and suffering of other people, sometimes more than we've ever felt our own pain. And so we can take in, we often, it was very mysterious. How does the shame of other people become ours? How does their pain become ours? Well, part of the answer is from physics because the movie is occurring inside you. Right. Everything you experience is also incurring inside your body. That's why meditation, yoga, all of the programs, you bring up a lot of excellent practitioners to talk about self-care and self-healing and clearing yourself and belief in yourself. Well, the more we can stay positive and raise the vibration, the less those kinds of dense things when they occur can harm us. But my goal was how do we get it out of the physiology of the body? I mean, that people that get frozen at the, like the woman with the um, abuse from childhood in her kidney region, when she finally did the work with me and the memory came up, she was five years old being molested by a family member and that was creating the pain to her kidney region. When we reframed that and showed he's not here still doing that to you, the body released its protective hold on the memory and the pain in the kidney region finally subsided. But it was the body of a five-year-old and except for brain, cornea, heart, and lung, we have new bodies every seven years, the cells regenerate. So why is the pain even there if we're naturally healing? Why is that pain still there? And I think the answer a lot of times is it's in the memory and it's in the emotional body or in the meridians of the body or it's in consciousness. You know, some people talk about past lives and things of that sort. I don't judge it. I just work whatever causes you pain in your body is real enough for you for us to access it. 
and that we work with. So sometimes it's not even your stuff. You know, I think we inherit things too. They're studying epigenetics now. I don't know that much about it, but I know that some patterns, uh, allergy to cherry blossoms can be go back five generations. And we don't know why the heck is this thing being transmitted? Wow. My mother has had a pain in her face for about 15 years. And she's tried every wow. physical therapy she possibly can. Um, in America, it's uh, psychotherapy uh, and that sort of area is far less stigmatized than it is in England. And mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. always shied away from it. She's actually had um, psychotherapists say to her, I can take your pain level down from a nine to a three. But she she shuns the whole idea because she thinks that it makes her mad if she goes to a, a psychotherapist. It's so crazy, isn't it? When you consider the power of the mind, the power of the brain, that people exactly. that we still see things in such a physical way. Correct. Well, we're also thinking traditional psychotherapy is talking the 5% talking to your rational mind. What's happening is we're developing consciousness technologies that talk to the 95% and integrate it with the 5%. Mm. So you're gaining mastery. So yeah, I did a workshop, actually I did some workshops in London, but I did a workshop, I, I, um, I was visiting, the person I was traveling with, we had dinner with Lady Remington Hobbs, who has since passed away in Leeds Castle. She lived in the Maiden's Tower of Leeds Castle. And she was in her 80s and her husband had died and her dog had died and some things had happened recently. And they wanted me to uh, to see if she'd be willing to do a little work. And her, her summary statement was, well, you just have to keep a stiff upper lip and get on with it, you know? And that was the end of it. It was like, no, we're not doing trauma. You keep a stiff upper lip and get on with yep. it. And how many of us have been told that? Just buckle up. You can't change the past. Well, what I say now, the problem isn't the past. The past is over. The problem is how your body in 95% of your mind stored the past intact with all of the sensory data, feelings, physiological changes, if it's a quantum act that we're learning, that you're actually creating this body right now from an unconscious place, then it's a very powerful act that you're maintaining this pain and physiology and you're maintaining the memory intact. Your subconscious does it to protect you. It holds on to the memory until you've proven that you've established safety, then it lets it go. I know because as an empath, when I did it in the early 90s, I felt the memory leave the body of my clients. I felt the migraine leave. I felt the whiplash, the neck pain leave. It went through my hand. I was hurting like, okay, now it's gone. How does your head feel? Oh, that left about a minute ago. I said, I felt it leave too. So is that the ultimate, is that the ultimate um, ideal for the memory to leave the body? Well, you know, you want to remember what happened to you. In fact, once you're not afraid of it, Mm. some people remember it in more detail. Right. The problem is when the science, the consciousness freezes, what David Groves T minus one taught us, which is a huge breakthrough in all sciences, medical science, psychology. What he showed us is that when the body takes that picture and captures all the sensory data, it captures the physiology, it caps the consciousness itself. And when you trigger that holographically, you're back there again, in a sense, reliving that original experience all over. So our goal was how do we prove to the body we're actually in 2021 and that we survived. So it's not so complicated. It's really not changing the past. It's changing your attachment to the past. That's where attachment theory comes in. It's changing our attachment. We're still believing in 95%, some part of your mind that you're still in the car accident. You know, you're still experiencing the pain. And when I reframed that, the original car accident was one woman on narcotics for 37 years. When I reframed her accident memory in about 20 minutes time, she never had pain in her legs again. It was entirely from the memory. Wow. So we've had it backwards. We treated the body medically. Yes. 
Well, we haven't been fully honoring consciousness, which I think your programs. Treating the symptom rather than the cause. Correct. And in Western medicine, they always treated symptoms. In Eastern medicine, Oriental medicine, you're a quack physician if you don't treat cause, right. if you don't look for the source. Mm. So some people believe that this work, these consciousness technologies emerging are very exciting. The The seventh breakthrough, I have a 20 minute YouTube video on my website about the seven breakthroughs, but the seventh breakthrough is when I put my hand over the tumor site of a cancer patient, the pain began to migrate around the body and show us a series of memories that had weakened her immune system and contributed to the growth of the cancer. And the body, we call it memory mapping. So when I work with clients, I use a software that I developed that uh, summarizes, stores each memory, shows the sequencing of the memories and a map of the body where the memories are occurring. Because for each trauma memory we hold, adrenaline goes up, T-cell and immunity go down. If we keep layering those memories and storing, we weaken and progressively weaken our immune systems and we're more vulnerable to any pathology or virus. So when we can heal our memories and put in safety, we stop the fight, flight, freeze reaction. And as we know from the general adaptation syndrome, Hans Selye, 84 years ago, that when adrenaline goes up and we're in hyper adrenaline production, corticosteroids, then T cells, thymus cells and immunity go down and we get sick. So if you want to really look at our challenge you know, on a daily basis, how many memories are you reliving or processing on an hourly or daily basis? They think we go through 15 to 50 memories an hour. And that's if you're not watching TV nowadays. You yeah. know? <laughs> so we go through, you watch commercials for five minutes, like even on the Hallmark channel, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, how many memories, how many medications and pills can they put into a single commercial break, you know? And so we're kind of being traumatized by our commercials nowadays as well. Well, I know that you must have heard of Century of the Self, the documentary, BBC documentary. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yes. it's, um, is it Edward Bernays? The, I think he's been seen as one of the pioneers of PR, and it's exactly what you're talking about. It's sort of appealing to us in a different way in order to make us do things. Differently, yes. Well, you know, manipulation, yeah. So, so if you can trigger fear, anxiety, rage in a person and activate this collective prehistory of affect, you know, then people's decision-making is being shaped, mm. you know, like we do it for ourselves. You know, if you trigger a memory and it, you haven't resolved your previous anger about this, then we suddenly blow up at the person. We're displacing all of our rage. I used to see it in the treatment centers where a doctor would come in raging at the nurses and the nurse would turn around eventually to the doctor and say, having a bad day, are we today? And the doctor would say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to vent. You know, my dog died. My child is ill. My wife is, you know, we're talking separation or something, you know, and one of my clients is very ill right now and I'm overwhelmed. And, and they build up anger, anger, resentment. And then one little trigger in the 5% conscious mind and the 95% prehistory of anger is tapped into and we inappropriately vent in present time on those around us. You know, so yes, we can be. And, and you know, the goal of, and in my latest article I sent you, I talk about the fact that terrorists try to frighten us by targeting our common collective archetypes, you know, like. You're suggesting basically there is a thread between what happened in 2000, in September the 11th, 9-11, and the coming to power of Donald Trump. Would I be right in suggesting that you're alluding to that? Yes, absolutely. I think 10 years, I mean, think of it, 10 years of frustration of, I call it the unresolved, the uh, uncaught perpetrator syndrome. Yes. 
that for 10 years, people were furious. There was this huge buildup in rage, road rage, corporate rage, religious rage, you know, perpetrators. The Me Too movement was started. So people got angry when the perpetrator, Osama bin Laden, was not caught for 10 years. And it just built in the collective unconscious anytime. So the whole thing about I'm angry, they didn't catch the perpetrator. Well, they kept playing the images of that plane, the planes fly. I worked on somebody this week who reframed her memory of the second plane hitting uh, the building that she was observing at the time. She saw it hit the orange flash. I'm still doing September the 11th work with people this week. It's still, ha it's still happening. Are we supposed to think uh, that Osama bin Laden is the, the ultimate bad guy in order to direct the blame away from other perpetrators, for example, the American government? Are we being told that he's the bad guy? To simplify well, things, I, I think. Well, if we if we did that, then we're probably going to look for an archetypal good guy who's angry to represent the healing process. Right. So if Osama bin Laden is the bad guy, let's pick a re pick a really angry, aggressive, authoritative figure to vo give voice to our anger, our resentment about these invasions, about September the 11th. So you saw the visible definition of trauma replayed, replayed, replayed. Finally, mm -hmm. the Red Cross and stations said, please stop playing it. You know, it's kind of like in the British media with Princess Di's, uh, you know, funeral, like, please don't don't film the children's faces as they're witnessing their mother's coffin, you know, the funeral hearse pass by. Please stop showing these graphic violating images. The subconscious can't take it. So anything similar to what you and I have already stored subconsciously activates what's already there. So it's not Osama bin Laden just in and of himself. It's what he represents to the subconscious. So my client, for instance, that had had sexual abuse when she saw the plane flying into the building, she was hooked to the screen that day, replaying, replaying. When she finds she could hardly get up to, to use the restroom, when she finally collapsed on the couch that night, what happened is she went right into a nightmare and there were two perpetrators we had not yet identified who had abused her as a child. And in her home, in her home she's, it's being broken into and the two faces that showed up were the two perpetrators that we had not yet reframed. So she subconsciously was triggered so each of us on September the 11th, if we, which we have all had some boundary violations, your degree of subconscious triggering, and usually we go into anger or fear. I went into both. I could tell when I was angry and I could tell when I was in a fearful state that day. And we go into the trances of our past. So whatever was unconsciously unresolved in our histories was triggered that day. And Osama bin Laden simply becomes an archetypal figure. Yes, he's a spearhead, but he's not the only one involved in that. There are many people involved. There was a lot of political prehistory. Sure. And what I, I suppose what I'm getting at is, does the establishment put that figure, that, that symbol in our head with, as you say, the constant replaying of it on the, on the airwaves and the media? Is that being done intentionally for us to see him as the bad guy. Because, for example, you know, I have issues with even the term terrorism. You know, America would call, uh, you know, what some people, some people would call a preemptive strike, others would call terrorism. When America uh, has incursions in other countries and they call them preemptive strikes, um, you know, whoever whoever uh, bombed the Twin Towers could call that a preemptive strike. Do you know what I mean? It's semantics at the end of the day. It's like this simplification process which is going on. And maybe we're all being directed towards that image of evil. We're being told that that image of evil is Osama bin Laden. And we, America, the allies, 
we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. It's sort of making it really binary and oversimplifying. Do you think that's being done on purpose? Well, I think um, when we are given, I, I think it can be done on purpose by some individuals. I think for the most part, it's it's sort of like it's subconsciously activated in the collective population um, people's individual trauma history. So if people say, for instance, is there a September the 11th trauma? I said, not really. There is each person's response to the sensory stimulation of September the 11th. So there were some common reactions that people had, but some people found out their best friends had died in the plane crashes on September the 11th. Uh, flight 800 went down in New York. When I worked with TWA on that, you know, they lost two whole flight crews. People lost 37 of their closest friends. Some people lost their best friends, but the trauma became, how did you find out? How did you learn about this? Who did you lose? What do we need to help you through the grief about that? So while there are certain figures, I think people can use these to try to marshal, you know, collective uh, motivation or polit manipulate political influence. Yes, people have always done that. What I look at is what did your body do with this? How did you store it? What is your reaction? But we are seeing some collective responses. But I think when so much rage and anger, when you take a pivotal event with the definition of trauma, trauma is a boundary violation. So plane flying into a building. So we're seeing violation, violation, violation. So anybody that had boundary violations, like my client with the sexual abuse, goes into their subconscious triggers and is disempowered. You know, and their anger, their rage, their fear. She went into fear. We worked through the memories. We released that. So it was kind of a wake up call. Like, have you. So seeing the Twin Towers being struck, it triggers your own personal trauma, but misdirects that personal trauma. So you can't necessarily identify it because your your personal trauma gets redirected into this this trauma of, of 9-11 and so all of your anger and rage is directed towards that rather than the actual source of your trauma in the first place. Well, it can be redirected. That's why what I say is go to your body. Right. What David Grove taught us was just go to your body. Where do you feel your anger about that? Mm. How old are you? So if we each did our personal work, there could not be the kind of collective manipulation or the use of a collective archetype. Like if people, I believe if we had done our anger work and if we'd resolved our resentments, our anger, our feelings of powerlessness had done our work, I'm not sure the capital could have occurred the whole capital invasion type thing, you know, insurrection. I'm not sure that amount of rage would have been able to be marshaled if, you know, people like to direct me in. And I think um, Gary Zukov in The Seat of the Soul talked about how we posit, it, posit our power outside of us in an authority figure, somebody that's gonna come along and fix us or heal us. So I think 10 years of rage, they're gonna elect a reality. Reality TV was born because they realize if they can show you graphic images similar to your trauma history, you're like my client with the abuse. She couldn't leave the TV set. She was engaged. I actually had somebody come visit one of the facilities I work at who said, I am a recruiter for reality TV figures and TV shows. And I said, why do you do that? Why do you like that? I find it offensive. It's traumatizing, you know, triggers memories. He says, oh, because it's kind of like being hypnotized. And I said, that is exactly correct. It activates the trauma history in the current population that is unresolved. And they are re-hypnotized to the screen by using a trigger similar enough to their personal history that their attention is now riveted and they're caught. 
It had they when the 95% is engaged, it's hard to leave the TV set. And so when people, uh, people, and you know, I, I think not to allude, I don't want to use any names, but our former president in the United States, you know, used, um, used hypnotic type language, very simple statements like we're the best, things are clear. Wow, this is exactly what I was going to ask you. How intentional was it? How much did he tap into our unconscious purposefully in order to direct us in the way that he wanted us to go? Well, there are times when I'm like, did he have NLP training? Right. Where is this coming from? You know, because it sounds pretty intentional and simplified. Keep it simple. But, you know, the truth is most, uh, not to use labels, but most narcissists that have trauma before the age of four are easily recognizable. They have no empathy. They're self-centered. They're, it's all about me. They really don't have regard for necessarily what they're saying. The trauma occurs before the age of moral development. So they can, can say what they need to say to win the argument, but they will not end up being very ethical in the end. They're very self-absorbed. They're grandiose. It's all about me. And there are certain consistent symptoms. And it's usually a child before the age of four, I think, sometimes before two, that disconnects from one or both parents that gets stuck in the me, me, me phase and never reaches the age of authentic empathy. And when they can't reach an empathic stage, what I've said for 30 years is the most dangerous person at the time of a health crisis. And I have women whose husbands see them having a miscarriage and says, you need to clean this up and get into the other room. You have three other children waiting on you. I have a man who said, uh, who wanted boys and he got three girls. For the first girl, he was disappointed, visibly disappointed at her birth. The second one, when he found out was a girl, he left halfway through the birth. When he found out in advance, the third one was gonna be a girl. He actually leased a car and sent her to the hospital for the birth and never showed up. Oh my God. Exactly. So when you want to know what a narcissist is, they're not hard to identify. I said, as he checked in the, into first class and left you and the kids in coach, one woman said he did that last week. I was like, okay, so it's about his needs, his stuff. The dangerous decision maker, the dangerous leader does not evidence empathy. And I don't know why they're afraid to use several people on some of the networks use the label narcissist and said, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But when you elect a personality disorder, a person with a serious personality disorder who is not able to access empathy, you know, we're in trouble. And Dominic heard me talk about this four years ago. And I think this is what he said. Are you writing an article about this? I said, yeah, I think I actually do need to do that because I see patterns. My gift is that I see patterns. And I'm like, everybody with 10 years of uncaught perpetration, we are going to generate a Me Too movement like we have never seen before. So it went through corporate corruption. It went through military corruption, you know, women abused in the military. It went through the religious systems, the priest pedophile thing. It went through uh, back to the politicians who were exposed themselves it went through you know it went through every single major system in the decade that followed and since that time and you can actually see see the rage wave the tsunami kind of move through society so it no longer was about osama bin laden at all they actually once they killed him and it's interesting because even i talk about capital punishment you can kill the perpetrator but if you still have the memory of your personal violation intact it does not alleviate the trauma. 
It doesn't resolve the personal trauma. So people were like, yeah, they killed him, but I'm so angry now that I was sexually abused when I was seven. And I remember that now. So it brought up memories for people. It activated the collective unconscious or subconscious. So people started remembering and appropriately so. They started confronting, talking about it, you know, uh, sharing their experiences. And it's still going. It actually, it's funny because it started with the media realizing they could hook us if they kept replaying invasive imagery. So reality TV was born and then it worked its all its way back, all the way back to media figures, you know, you know, that had actually abused people, whether it was the Bill Cosby. So it actually kind of went back on itself. It, you know, it, it went back to corruption in the media, you know, so, but reality TV is still here, you know, over Christmas, I was watching different commercials and they're like, you know, one where a child's injured and they're like, the woman's obsessed with feeding the cat. She's like, yeah, well, you're bleeding, put two band-aids on it. And she's focused <laughs> yeah, on the I've animal. Seen You've seen that commercial. Uh, There's another one where, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we're opening our Christmas presents. So exciting. And one's like, oh, I'm so thrilled. I have an insurance policy. And they show the little boy that's crying sad because they only got was a bike. And I'm like, is nothing sacred? Is, right. Are they not going to try to shock us? And, and they realized the shock effect, that shock language, that invasive stuff, like throwing you off balance was a marketing strategy. And that media picked it up, insurance companies, health company, health providers, everybody picked up this kind of aggressive invasive imagery. And, you know, if we have a lot of sensory triggers, it's violating, you know, it's pretty traumatizing. And that's in order to get us do, to do what they want us to do, which is to buy stuff, Correct. to be consumers, right? So it really just, Correct. you know, comes down to greed at the end of the day, which is why I believe we're moving further and further away from idyll, from sort of halcyon days of, you know, mm-hmm. of nature, of giving, of compassion. Yeah, Thomas Kuhn, instructor of scientific revolution, says sometimes you can't install the new paradigm without the death of the old, right. the, the perpetrators or people that maintain it. You literally have to go back and witness the death of the old paradigm. And I'm beginning to wonder if you're right about that. But my goal is if each human being committed, you know, I also have a nonprofit that does the research for this, but, you know, the personal, the mission statement is our belief that global change begins with each human being's commitment to heal his or her own trauma history. Right. If we can release the fear, rage, and anger induced from the past, then we're just proportionate in our emotions and our decision-making in the present. If we can do like you're doing, keep the children, the children are our hope for the future. If we can keep them clear. So you asked about the technique. No, I'm not just looking at getting a technique out there. I'd like to see every parent doing the simplest part and just reframing, creating a safe scene with their child. I have an anesthesiologist, an Orthodox Jewish anesthesiologist in Chicago, who by the time his children hit two, he has them create their safe scene visualize safety, move the color, learn to breathe, move the color through the body. And here's the key. Anything we move through the body 50 to 52 times imprints in the subconscious. We are When repro- you say move through the body, how do you, what do you mean? You can visualize it. You, we do okay. 16 breaths a minute minimally. Mm-hmm. So you can breathe. I like to breathe the color. You okay. could do a waterfall from your head down. You could play a recording of it and hear it auditorily repeated 50 to 52 times. When a little child, so when your daughter hears a new word 50 to 52 times, it's going into her little subconscious database and is stored there. So she will have that available to her in the future. So when we breathe, we do 16 breaths a minute. So after three and a half, four, after four minutes, we've done 64 breaths and we're reprogramming whatever that color frequency, that image with that color, that feeling color. We're reprogramming the subconscious and learning to heal our correct 
what was previously programmed in there. So, you know, we learned in the 70s, the subconscious is very creative, is very flexible. So there's a lot of hope there. We can reprogram our histories. It's not your history that's the problem. It's how you're maintaining it and stored it in your subconscious. So how it's still haunting you and creating problems. So when we can heal those attachments and just be grateful, like, oh, thank you. If I hadn't had my Asperger's father, I wouldn't have developed this work. If I hadn't my very intuitive mother, you know, I wouldn't have been able to develop and confirm this with empathy 10 years before the scientists figured it out. You know, if that had not already been in place, I would not have, you know, been able to present this and do this. And we have kids doing, getting rid of migraines of other kids using the color technique. Like, oh, when you have a headache, is it inside, outside? shape, size, color, weight, temperature, texture, anything else, you know, how old are you when you first feel this or what would you like to do with it? What color would you replace that with? And when you run your corrective colors to your body, a lot of these things go away and often they do not come back. So we're learning quantum mastery of our physiologies is what we're doing. We're learning how to use our own brain waves to heal what's stuck, you know, to release the attachments to the past. We're not changing history releasing our obsessive, you know, subconscious attachment to the history. Yeah. So much of what you're saying makes so much sense. And I think in the modern world, we are, it's such a blame culture. We're so ready to blame mm -hmm. something without mm -hmm. for our problems. Yeah. And, but every time I speak to a Buddhist, they always tell me that the answers are all within that you Correct. must focus, you know, focus inwards in order to, to, to become more content, become more satisfied. And it makes mm -hmm. so much sense to me. And it really, it really, what you're saying really resonates with that for me. And I, I know that you don't, you're a man of integrity and you don't want to be judgmental about individuals, but what's just happened to us in America over the last five years is it's mind boggling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. with the, it the, is. The previous well, administration. Yes. And but I think, like I said, you know, one of the things that happens is when trauma is triggered, we regress. You go back to childlike thinking. We're either angry or fearful. It's like but in terms of but in terms of of Donald himself, you know, mm. you talk about narcissism, for example, and it, that that word has been assigned to him so many times. It makes so much sense. But in terms of, I'm asking you an imponderable, I suppose. But in terms of how he felt about it, the narcissist himself, do you think he felt? genuinely felt because i get this sense that he authentically genuinely feels that he is doing what is for the greater good and what he's been doing over the last five years is for the greater good do you think he genuinely felt that and did narcissists narcissists genuinely feel they're doing the right thing or is it pure impersonal empowerment that they're doing all this for because of that you know childhood neglect for example well, yes, I think we, we, that's the greatest challenge. You know, Bernie Siegel, Love Medicine Miracle says people become addicted to their own beliefs. Right. And so whether it's true or not may not be the main issue. It's like, how attached are we to the beliefs? Hmm. And uh, Pat Roberts, I think when he was kind of detaching from Trump and, and distancing kind of the, some of the more evangelical communities from his position, you know, was saying he truly, he believed that Trump believed what he taught and what he's saying. Now, I think there are times and that's true. I think there are times when people are doing business you know, manipulation for the purpose of being just successful or making money. And I'm not sure how much of that is really authentic or true. But I think, you know, the narcissist often developmentally is frozen. And so they believe from their frame of reference what is true, what is authentic. And, and working with people, I don't judge anyone about how they got there or where they came from. But we do look at behaviors and consequences and like what's happening there. And um, so 
I am not quite sure. Can you clarify your question a little bit as to... Um, Absolutely. Do you think that um, somebody like Donald Trump, for example, or a narcissist, do you think that they genuinely believe that their actions are for the greater good? They, their actions are integrous actions or... Yeah, do they believe that? Yeah, I, I think oftentimes they do. And I think, you know, there's no there's no accounting for beliefs, what people want to believe about themselves. We've had a lot of difficulty treating narcissists. They don't believe they have a problem. They tend to, narcissists blame. They don't have empathy. They're very comfortable with blaming. The minute something went wrong, it's the Democrats doing this. It's somebody doing this to me. It's something, and obviously over time, it wasn't other people doing all these hard things all the time. You make mistakes. The narcissist typically cannot admit an error, cannot admit any mistake. And for any parent, that's dangerous. If you can't teach your child that you're human and you make mistakes, that's a dangerous type parenting role model. You know, yes, I make mistakes. I'm human. If they're so defended that they move into a delusional state where I never make a mistake, I'm God's gift to humanity, we're in trouble because that belief system, it's the kind of beliefs that make people believe they can fly a plane into the Twin Towers and they're serving God by killing people. You know, we see the, the dissociation when beliefs you know, and maybe the narcissist evidence of dissociation is when you believe you can, you can uh, motivate people and rile them into violating, you know, uh, sacred spaces or invading the capital to make a point. You have to be pretty dissociative from what is the common good, the collective. And that's the danger. Narcissism, even addicts, alcoholics, you know, denial and blaming, denial and blaming. When people are in that place, you can't treat it if you can't identify there's even a problem. And narcissists typically in therapy, like my wife is the problem. It's really about her. She's not pretty enough, not smart enough, not good enough. She's the issue. She's the problem. You know, that's why I have affairs. That's why I do these things. Well, this is really not true. But the narcissist, you're right. You know, can we become addicted to our own beliefs? Can we become so entrenched in our own beliefs that we can no longer accept external data? about reality from other people, if that's the case, that would become a very, very, and I believe it was a very dangerous leader. And if that's the case and that you're totally self-absorbed, you're really not so concerned about what's happening in health crises outside of you. You want it to go away. You want the economy to look good. You want you to look good. You don't want to wear a mask. It makes you look strange, like you're admitting there's a virus. We don't want to do things like that. But I'm telling you in a health crisis, when I see husbands neglecting their hemorrhaging wives or leaving their children somewhere on the floor in order to go to a golf tournament or something. I'm like, there is something wrong with this reality. And so ultimately we do, we do have to say, yes, you know, each person is entitled to their beliefs, but we will hold them accountable if they start to render, you know, interpersonal harm, social harm, collective harm. The interesting part is the narcissist freezes before the age of moral development at seven or eight. Their ethics and moral judgment are seriously compromised. And if people don't know what a personality disorder is, so, you know, one of the questions you had about, you know, Trump, oh, you know, like, like history proceeds, we know this, history is supposed to proceed as historical dialectic, and it will. So there's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. There's, for every Bush, there's going to be an Obama. For every Trump, there's going to be a Biden. Do we understand it takes a Trump sometimes to generate a collective momentum from a self-absorbed, maybe a more angry model to a more compassionate, you know, model? Of so it's a reaction to that angry model. Correct. The, the, the angry model is is necessary in order to create the the yang, the, the you know, the opposite. 
Ultimately, yes. Society, if it proceeds into feeding its anger and not resolving it, it will force itself into a position of finding an alternative that will, will meet its needs. Yeah. And so, yes, thesis, antithesis, and hopefully synthesis. So Wonderful. we're moving. You know, it's actually pretty classic. You know, you have an angry counterdependent, and you have a codependent that's more accommodating, fear-based. So with the alcoholics, we had this angry, I don't have a problem. You're the problem. Everybody's the problem. And the codependent, I'll fix it. I'll make it better. I have the resources to help you. I'm going to do it. You know, and we just had to watch that because sometimes the codependent got sick and died when it wasn't nurtured and supported, you know, because the codependent was off, the counterdependent was often medicated and numbed out and had their own resources. So, you know, it's kind of classic. We, from the 50s, we've seen the very pattern we're seeing manifest socially in front of us, emergent, you know, counterdependent, codependent, moving to balance. We need to move to balance, walk right down the middle, not too, other, not too self-centered, not overly other-centered. If you get too codependent and accommodate too many other people, you can't make a decision. There's no decision-making. You're paralyzed. I don't want the Biden administration to be codependently Either do I think we got any, we, we got a few things accomplished financially, economically with Trump and the other administration, but, you know, and so people, some people really voted for him for the financial backing, but, right. you know, yep. we're, we're evolving in consciousness, you know, and the way it's done is as important as the outcome, I think. And if it's done in an abusive manner, it doesn't justify, it doesn't justify the outcome just because, you know, uh, we pick a figure that represents that interest, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And we need we need a good role model, don't we, as our president? Apart from anything else, somebody who's going to help us to to, to yeah have positive habits in our life. It just didn't yes. feel like that was happening with the previous administration. I'm a really optimistic Correct. person, but I'm very pessimistic about the status quo. And yeah, just this move towards consumerism, towards constantly more and more towards the self and towards a lack of compassion and kindness in the world. What is the answer? Are you, are you positive? Are you hopeful about the future? And, and where, where should we be going now in order to try and heal these wounds, in order to try and make us more compassionate and kind? Do you have any answers? Well, I believe that what we're doing in terms of seeing consequences, seeing how it affects us personally, finding ways, if we can find ways to release our, our histories, our personal and collective history of trauma, then we make decisions from a calm, balanced place. And I think Biden's intentions are good in that we're moving to a more compassionate, let's get the help out there. Let's, we're not going to badmouth anybody. We're not going to shame. We cannot use shaming tactics. It's created some ethical limits for people. Two-thirds of the population is showing an ethical shift in the direction of compassion, provide resources, provide help. Let's stop shaming bad. You cannot successfully use shaming, demeaning, abusive techniques and go forward successfully. It's not going to happen. You're causing people to freeze and get stuck. You know, you're inflaming rage, you're inflaming anger, it's going to blow up on you, which I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not, not surprised or shocked. And in a way, uh, if a narcissist is going to reveal him or herself and their choices and the consequences, it's going to blow up on them. And ultimately, it causes people to see more evidently what's happening and shift. So we are going through the paradigm shift. It will take place. It's inevitable. You know, we're going to move and the kids are learning like what's abusive, what's not, what's appropriate language, what's not. 
we're beginning to learn, um, you know, politically what is appropriate language. What, and I think we deteriorate. You're right. We've deteriorated a lot in that a lot of things, given our desensitization from September the 11th, created a lot of allowances for for language and dishonesty and false accusation as part. Anything, it's almost like with with the flying of the planes. Like anything became okay to motivate people, to make them change their decisions. And whether it's marketing or strategies or politics, our ethics have taken a step backwards. There's no question about that. You know, and if people don't understand, I think the key is understanding the mechanisms of trauma in that if we're trapped in rage and anger inside ourselves, we're going to create that outside of us as well. Yeah. So your effort to create personal harmony, personal peace, personal growth, to find the beauty and integrity of every human being within themselves. That's the answer. It's and it's going to begin on the ground level. It's not going to become from the higher up because these are entrenched political systems that we're going to actually have to have leaders. The children of the future will emerge as our political leaders who have done their work. You know, when you shame, harm, abuse other people, you're abusing yourself. You're harming yeah. yourself. If if you are to see it in that way, I, I see it that way. I mean, I've never been a religious person, particularly religious person, but um, I feel that there is a certain moral code with religion. I think that if you're to use common sense with religion, then you can take so much wisdom, so much, um, so, so such a moral code from the fables of every religion, of every great scripture, if you're to use it with common sense. But I think there's sort of increasing dissolution of religion has created a bit of a moral vacuum and and i'm hoping that we will become more connected more spiritual again correct not necessarily framed in a religious way but in a spiritual way so we can understand that we are all connected that when you break us down to our smallest level we are just all atoms which think exactly the same and and have that feeling again i watched this amazing um piece of content last night it's called in and of itself i don't know if you've heard of it I have not, but I would highly recommend watching. It's absolutely wonderful. It's quite ambivalent or ambiguous. I don't know which still I'm still processing it, but Mm -hmm. there was a wonderful feeling of connectedness with the audience. It's a theater piece, which has been filmed and made into a film. And there is a wonderful connectedness with the audience and they don't quite understand why they feel so connected. They don't understand why they're crying during this performance, but there is Hmm. something so magical about connectivity and people coming together and, you know, dissolving those egos and just coming together and realizing they're all the same they're not better or worse than each other they all have this common strand of humanity and i don't even really know how to how to put it into words to articulate it but i think that's where we need to move towards and i think it's the higher state of consciousness which you were talking about right at the start yes yes we're more alike than we are different and every human being has some level of, of frozenness or trauma. We're trying to move forward. We're trying to grow, become more loving, evolve forward. And uh, we have resources emerging that help us do that. You know, we're learning about our power individually and collectively. Um, but I, I think you're exactly right. I will check that out also. That's quite interesting. In, in and of itself. In and of wonderful. itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me feel very positive. Um, I've taken so much of your time already. And I, I swear to you, I could speak to you for 30 hours and have no problems at all. I'd need a couple of toilet breaks. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would want to talk to you for 30 hours because you are a fascinating guy. Who inspires well, you? you? When, I, when I talk about inspiring figures in the world, you know, is there somebody that immediately comes to mind and why? You know, I think at this point, most of the, I think I would have... 
uh, I think the figures that I've turned to most in the past, there've been, you know, people like um, David Grove from New Zealand was a pioneer, um, Michael Talbot, you know, um, there are just a lot of people, I think, in the past. And or John Sarno, his work out of New York and healing the spine and the back naturally. Um, Carl Pribram, a lot of these people passed away in the last decade or so. So I think you're right in that we've lost some of our, our leadership, our role models, and people are desperately looking for that kind of role model, somebody to take us forward. So I'm not sure if there's one person that stands out right now. I'm proud of Dominic, you know, speaking out from, I worked with him for years about all this corporate trauma and hoped he stayed alive long enough to share. Cause I, I really think our goal is, you know, bringing people forward. So I think people like that, maybe our, our saints and our leaders. Yeah. It's disarming. It's really disarming because I find him to be a true, you know, altruist. And I find that sort of, a sort of more and more rare quality in the world. Somebody that's genuinely kind, that really gets motivated by doing things for other people. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, he'd go to Mongolia and live in a yurt for six months or recharge <laughs> himself, you know, and then come back and attempt to be killed by the mafia or something like that. And I'm like, so I think maybe our role models are not the traditional saintly, you right. know, oh, just all I'm like, he's gotten down and dirty with the people, you know, he was like there putting the trenches there in the middle of it all. And uh, he's fascinating. So I think he is, a, he's a figure I've watched. I like to feel experience, watch how people evolve within these contexts and, you know, um, fascinating to watch. So in a sense, each human being that I work with teaches me about the power of the human spirit to rebound and heal itself. So if you ask me who the, my role model is, I think it's the resilience of the human person, not one individual, but that collectively, you know, there's a part of us. You know, I will say that Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, way back when, you know, surviving the concentration camps, I'm like, I remember thinking, not that I was tortured in the seminary, Catholic seminary, but I'm like, if he can survive that, you know, we can survive pretty much any kind of oppression and make a choice to find meaning in the midst of our darkness. And I think we're really being challenged right now to not get trapped in our own emotions and become imprisoned by our rage or our anger so that, you know, then we're looking outside of ourselves. I think the whole era is shifting. I believe the, the transition is that you are your own medicine man. And like you said, who's the role model outside of me? My answer to you is this paradigm shift is that Oliver is amazing and has all of the colors inside himself. He has a big heart. He has a great wisdom. You're willing to move forward. So, I mean, it's people like you that, that are our role models. You're like, okay, what are we looking at? So each, I'm always excited to find out how a person is evolving and their higher self. With, we're stepping into our higher selves. As you resolve your traumas and are no longer, as uh, Gary Zukov called it, five sensory bound, you're becoming a multidimensional being that is capable of existing in the present, but also releasing the past, aware of your pull from the past, aware of our personal and collective egos, and we're learning to discharge that. So, you know, we're no longer going to be looking. We do need leaders. We need to need role models. You know, I've taught a lot. I've taught 
I've certified 64 people in what I do. I have a thousand in wow. training right now. We're getting it out there. Vessel wow. van der Kolk is reviewing the technique right now, seeing videos of it for approval and support and suggestions about our research. So we're going to go forward. You know, so we're just trying to forge ahead with the, the old residual ego still kind of dragging behind, you know, and, and slowing things down a bit. The vets are still dying, you know, at 20 a day or something. It's ridiculous. Like we have techniques that can make a difference. We're trying to get things out there, but you're right. Sometimes I, I think, you know, our, our resilient ego is still there in the background pulling us. So, but if, you know, I think the human person and um, each person I work on when I can help them access that place of light that power we don't realize how powerful we really are i mean if you can pause consciousness any event itself in a in a psychophysiological way and and freeze then we're incredible creators so i look forward to humanity emerging from this i look forward to increased awareness of ethical propriety i look forward to a i think one thing i will talk about is that clean language speaking and honoring the integrity of the human person in the language we use. David Grove was kind of a pioneer in the clean language approach that you listen to the genius inside the person next to you and they will tell you when, where, how, and why they froze. And using their own internal clean language, you can empower them to send in the love and light that they didn't get and heal themselves. So clean language, people, my hero is like people that promote clean language and empower other people through their speech. So we're not going to be shaming, demeaning, putting people down, ridiculing, calling people names. What the heck is that? That's the old primitive traumatized child trapped in a paradigm that's existed for millions of years, you know. And so we're coming out of that paradigm. So anybody that promotes clean language, integrity, um, the four Positive agreements. intentions. Yeah, yeah, the four agreements. I was know. going to ask you very quickly, though, do you think there's any value at all in the ego then? Um, yes, well, it's, you know, uh, our ego is the, the perfect archetypal expression of our karma, of our unfinished business. I mean, we right. choose our, I believe we choose our parents. We choose our lifetime. We choose these things. It is the, the shadow backdrop for enlightenment. So, so, so understanding the ego is the path to enlightenment. Yes. But yes. then once you've, once you've, once you've found that path to enlightenment, can you not just do away with the ego entirely? Well, the point is that the ego, I believe ultimately it dissolves into probably the Buddhist, mysticism comes closest to the concept there is only one mind the illusion that oliver is separate from brent is a separate entity altogether is our current state of evolution but in reality i can feel your pain because we're all the same being i can feel what happens to you i can feel your pain and i can help you access and release it and when it goes from your body it goes through my body i feel the pain you know the privileges i've had of people that witnessed hiroshima and nagasaki i felt that trauma leave their body people that witnessed the assassination of presidents and you know of senators and other people i felt pain leave their bodies you know people that uh Oh my goodness, the things that I've seen, the Twin Towers, watching the, the towers go down and realizing their entire company goes down in the building, you know, feeling that trauma leave the body. I know we can heal. I, for me, it's a material reality. I know people can release the past. 
And every time we do that, we go up in vibration. And, you know, I have less ego in that I don't judge anybody. I mean, if Osama bin Laden's family or he was alive and came in for trauma reframing, if I could get out of my own, you know, ego attachments enough, I just do the work with them. I'm like, we just need to do your, so you're right. Wherever each person comes from is a fascinating journey. I work on members of the same family sometimes. Some therapists have ethical issues with that, but you know, I work on members of the same family and it's like being in five different kids. It's like having been in five different families. <laughs> the frame of, like I asked one person, how was your childhood? Oh, it was kind of tough. They acted next to right. oh, it was great. How was your childhood? I don't really remember a whole questions. lot about yeah. my childhood. Mm-hmm. It's like five different families. So first rule of trauma resolution is forget what everybody else says happened to you. It's what your body and your experience is and that we can work with. And there is a genius. There is a, a genius inside each person. The higher self, the higher mind, the soul expresses itself through this current body, through the ego. And so this ego is precious. I mean, the pains that come up, it's showing you where you're stuck in your evolution, in your consciousness. You know, these egoic figures, even the Trumps that represent where we're stuck as a culture in our consciousness, collectively and personally, they perform a valuable function in that. Have you ever seen so many people voting or motivated to get out and make a change or a difference? You know, so if it can motivate us for right action in a healing direction, it's positive. If it's shaming and disintegrative, that's my basic principle. If it's shaming and disintegrative, it doesn't support it's it so true and it's such a practice that we can all engage in every day you know um the intentions that your positive intentions that you're talking about and clean language clean communication uh, yes. i think everybody could benefit from the work that you're doing and i'm sincere when i say that i would like love to work with you um obviously depending on whether i can afford I will, it <laughs> i will give you a free i will give you a free session maybe you need to no. offer mom a free session but i'm not sure she's gonna yeah. take it <laughs> you know, i wouldn't I, I wouldn't do it for free i definitely wouldn't do it for free. i couldn't accept that but i would love to to see how you work because it sounds fascinating i wanted to ask you um mm-hmm. sometimes i see humanity as like a pendulum swinging backwards and forwards rather than moving forward constantly like a wheel mm-hmm. going downhill do, but mm-hmm. you to me you seem a little bit more hopeful in a hundred years time do you think we will be more compassionate, more connected, more kind. Yes, yes. you do. Absolutely. Because I think Probably. we finally have techniques. We've been on this planet for at least seven, they've proven 7.9 million years. And we haven't been released. We haven't had, you know, I'm an empath. I can tell you what techniques actually release trauma. I feel it if it leaves, I feel it if it's still there. You know, I did psychoanalysis for 17 years, three times a week. I was like, okay. So I put my hand on C7 and say, now tell me about your, your abuse. And they're like, oh, well, the, they mentioned the name of the perpetrator and the pain comes up in the body, the pain body and the trances are intact. So they talked about it. They've analyzed it. They've mapped it. But if they never did any effective trance work to release the 95%, then we're still stuck in the affect and the trauma is intact in the body. It may have been reduced by talking about it but the trances are still hurting my hands are still intact in your body. And I know it's still there. So my frustration is I've had people do every known trauma technique. If I put my hand on C7 and they talk about it and the trance is still intact, it did not fully release the pain from the body. They're still in the memory. And so but the gift of my empathy has been a blessing and a curse. And I'm like, it's, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, we've done all this stuff. You know, I trained in healing touch, things like that. It would release this trauma. Well, the truth is five to 15% of memories released when you just remember them. They discharge from the body. So every technique has had a five to 15% release rate because you just recalled it and you brought so it up. So just remembering is cathartic in itself. 
for some people, yes. There are other memories, an 85 to 95% for some people that will not release without your personal proof of safety. And reducing it diminishes it, but doesn't take the, if a fragment of a hologram, I think Carl Pribram, maybe one of our best neuro, neuro, neurophysiologists in history, said all senses and memory function holographically, three-dimensionally. Every fragment of a hologram contains the whole thing. So if you do a reduction technique, but leave the memory intact, then a couple of years later, when the memory is talked about, it resurrects itself, it comes back up. And we have a lot of reduction techniques right now that are out there, but my target was always, let's have you put in the love and safety, the surgical laser-like insertion of the frequencies that were missing. So we stop reliving the past. We stop living in the past. And you know, whatever the future is, the, the optimal path to the future is by being fully present, as you know, in the present moment, fully present in the present moment, which means that we're not trancing into memories constantly all day long. We're not living the physiologies of the past, burning out our immune systems, that we're really, you know, trying to empower ourselves fully. And the divine consciousness source, whatever it is, is fully empowered by living in the present. So yes, a century from now, if we do more mindfulness, I call this mindfulness with respect to your body as memory. This is mindfulness for memory. If we can be mindful of our bodies, of our eating, of our raising of our children, mindful parenting, mindful eating, if we can be in the present moment, and not be encoding this trauma, our vibration goes up. The planet's vibration is already rising. We're moving, you know, the Schumann resonance. We're going up in frequency. We're more holographically accessible to our memories and our memory, vice versa. We're more able to access our memories. Um, we're going up in vibration. And so there is a potential, higher potential for healing and for work within holographic space. And that's the sacred space of the mind. And, you know, years ago, there were books published that said the higher self is the holographic mind. We're at play in a universe of images. If we can learn from a quantum standpoint to master those images, to not be trapped and bound by our five senses, then yes, there is great hope for us. I see us moving forward. If you think about it, our expectations for parenting are way different than they would have been 40, 50 years ago. You're like, oh, we don't do to children. We don't, we don't have to hit, spank, beat, do these kinds of their cultures that still do, you know, but we do, we've, we've matured in our parenting. We, nowadays we see somebody yelling at a child and we're like, okay, this is child abuse material. You know, we can report this, you know, kind of a thing. So yes, I think our knowledge of what is appropriate clean language is maturing. This, this thing we just went through presidentially leadership was a horror, was a shock to me. Like, do we really not know enough about trauma to recognize the opposite of clean language, to recognize abusive language, to recognize abusive behaviors. It was a bit of a shock. And I was like, we got our work cut out for us. So what you and I are trying to do, Oliver, and deliver this information to people to say, we need to understand that you cannot progress forward as a society by shaming or demeaning people and forcing them into a frozen state in the 95% and expect a society to evolve. It's not going to happen. We're going to stay stuck. Yeah, you framed it with such clarity. Just speaking about mindfulness, an image that I really like about mindfulness and meditation is that uh, your thoughts are a waterfall. And um, when you do mindfulness and meditation, you're stepping back from the waterfall. So you can still see all the thoughts in that waterfall, but you can do it with some clarity and with, you know, a little bit of space and awareness of what's going on. I really like that, that image. Um, I, I just think that people around you must feel, I hope they feel so lucky because you are, you have such wisdom and you've 
obviously you haven't wasted a moment in your life. You've done all of the work in order to be able to disseminate all this wisdom and compassion, I suppose. Well, what I want to ask you is, what's your motivation? What's your intention as well for, for the rest of your life? But what, yeah, what really motivates you? Well, you know, I think as a, as a child, the thing was to be passionate about the experience of life, that there's a joy and an enthusiasm and a beauty to be found in. In the archaeology, I was like Louisiana Jones here, right? You know, so I'm like, I want to touch the objects. I want to feel it. And as an empath, so I told, I told the director which direction to dig. I actually had my own excavation off the main site. And I told the direction, the director which direction to dig. And he gave me sort of my own site. He was curious. And, and over four seasons, I ended up digging up a man my height, my size, my age, who was killed when a cave collapsed on him at 3750 BC. And I'm like, you know, wow, how did I know which direction to dig? How did I know where to go with that? But I think as we're evolving as a species, our inner navigation system comes online and gives us more and more amazing experiences of connection to all that is, you know? And, you know, in the process of doing that, the passion I had for archeology. span So I'm still passionate because I'm now a psycho archeologist. I just didn't know you could lose the hammer. And actually the day I removed the skeleton from 3750 from the ground, my obsession with archeology span was gone. It just vanished. And I'm like, wow, did I like dig up a part of myself from the past or is this ancestral memory? What was this? And then I shifted within a year or two and like, I think I'm going to become a therapist. Then my hands went active where I realized I could feel pain, feel memories, feel things. And I said, you know, I never knew you could just drop the physical material attachments, right? I didn't know you could drop the patiche, drop the hammer, move my hand over the human body and like, oh, wow, what happened to your head? So I'm like, in the past, I discovered with humanity, I could scan the human body and feel all of these events. I could feel what happened to a person, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What happened when you were under a table during the bombing of London? You know, what happened during, uh, you know, I did a presentation on the anniversary. I did a presentation at Mercy Hospital and I was telling them the last time I did grand rounds at a hospital was the anniversary of September the 11th. And that evening is when they attacked Paris. So I was like, what the heck is the synchronicity here? Um, but anyway, so, you know, for myself, I think the enthusiasm excitement comes from, you know, for myself, I intend to be a fully developed psychoarchaeologist and to role model for people what we're capable of as a species when we move into empathy. That is my goal. I want to roll. And I know that's my mission. So I like that you're supposed to document intuitives that I worked with. You're supposed to document and write down and record what you're doing and the stages you go through, then teach it to other people. And, you know, it took me 13 years to figure out. There was a, a lovely red haired girl in uh, Chicago. I did the technique on her and she had the most amazing experience, but she was so freaked out. She's like, I don't think I'm coming back. I don't think I'm coming back. And then she did come back for a session, did a second session, equally amazing. And she then became an energy healer. She got a degree in energy healing and like, this is great. This is unbelievable. But she went through such a paradigm shift. So my goal is if enough people get it, if we just get it, how powerful we are and that we have the power to heal, then this entire external world will shift 
as we help people change inside ourselves. So people like you that are getting the word out that we use social media, we use things. Social media has been used to traumatize. It'd be nice if we could use it to heal, right? So we want to turn it around and do it the other way and get the word out there. And I know this will grow. It's going to grow pretty exponentially at this point because it just works. And, and the way it works is I'm not really doing anything. What I say is I'm, I'm helping you dehypnotize yourself from where you froze in the past to survive. And so I call my work facilitated self-dehypnosis. I'm getting a humanity unstuck from its subconscious so that we can move forward and reveal what we're truly, which is exciting, what we're truly capable of. I know as I clear my personal, my second book was called Living is Light, The Awakening of Mystical Consciousness. When you clear the red, black, dense energies of trauma from your body, you're a better parent. You're more empathic with your child. You're not distracted by your own memories or your own density. You can feel the pain of other people. When I first cleared in the early years, I'm the final exam for the therapist I trained. When I started clearing my head stuff and two head injuries, then I could feel the migraines of other people in my head because I wasn't dense myself, so to speak, you know, as I cleared it. So there is actually a physics of this. As we heal ourselves, we're going to evolve and be more empathic as a species. And this, this Trump thing just should not even be possible in the future. <laughs> I, uh, most evenings I go to bed listening to an Alan Watts lecture and the depth of insight and knowledge and wisdom that you have, it feels like uh, Alan Watts. It feels like listening to Alan Watts in the evening. It's wonderful. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. After, after working on so many people, my clients say, if I have trouble going to sleep, I just put on your CD or was MP, <laughs> right. but the, my MP3 site died with COVID. I think it killed my MP3 site, but we're working on that. But, you know, the information's out there. So, yes, you can always listen to my voice. You know, as a, as a when I was a priest, they'd say, oh, we love listening to your homilies. It's like we're hypnotized. It's like, but it, sometimes it's so calming, it puts us to sleep. So I was like, well, after then doing much, enough trauma work and trying to create safety for people, that's true. If you have insomnia, you can always just listen to my voice in the background and you'll probably go to sleep so amazing i will be amplifying all the work that you do and hopefully sending all of my audience towards you as well so they can see expand upon the amazing work that you're doing i i, I we've been speaking for two hours now and it feels like five minutes and i as i said i could go on Ad, ad infinitum. <laughs> I, I hear dumb. you. Well, we can always do something else. You know, I'm, I, uh, I'm enthusiastic and I love talking about this kind of psychoarchaeology and the experience with people are just, to me, it's, it's, it is exciting. You know, it's like archaeology, but it's living archaeology, you know? Yeah. And we are, we are walking around broadcasting our memories every day. You know, we do a whole talk sometime about what parts of your body, when they hurt, what suggests what trauma from your history. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I have like 150,000 cases like this. I've, so the Chinese have done this for thousands of years, but I've observed it, but I felt it. What kinds of traumas occur in what part of your body and how? Okay, the body so to finish then, things. to finish, so, yeah. just to try and give my mother some kind of antidote. She's <laughs> right. got a problem with her mouth. She's always had pain in her mouth. What, does that suggest any particular trauma? Wow. If I scanned her, dentists love me because if I scan your jaw, I'm like, is it in her jaw, the TMJ? Is it dental? Can you, do you know where it's she at? She feels it's mouth? dental. The doctor yeah. described it as atypical facial pain, just to give, just to call it something after all of these years. 
Well, you know, there is dental trauma. They can hit that uh, trigeminal nerve and create a problem that lasts for years if they hit that nerve. It takes about three years for that to subside, I think, if it does. You know, but when I scan people's jaws, I'm like, wow, your jaw is so tight on the right. You're clenching. And It's amazing how your... often we do that, isn't it? Sorry, I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt, but whenever I meditate, I realize how tight my mouth and my jaw are. Yeah. Is it, are you tighter on the right or the left side? Maybe the right. Yeah. So I'd look at males that repressed your voice. Authority wow. and male systems that were repressed. It didn't let you speak your truth. And wow. so if you can find out, because I feel that tightness, I'm like, okay, here it is. It's really tight. Who repressed your voice? It was not okay to speak your truth on that male side. Who is this? And they can wow. tell me who it was. On the left side, the females, right side, if you're right-handed. So your dominant side is your dominant parent, usually a male figure kind of thing. So yeah, so if it's in the throat voice. So I've, I've worked with thousands, hundreds, you know, memories at every single site in the body. So that's always, that's been one of my objects. So when I, I do my software that I developed, it prints out a summary of your memories and all the sites in your body where the memory has occurred. Because like if you had a wonderful mother, but your father was terrible, all your pain's on your right side if you're right-handed. And all the memories will be showing up on the right side of the body developmentally. So I'm like, our bodies broadcast our trauma histories every day, what's finished wow. and unfinished. So that that's another is subject. Absolutely. So. I am so coming to you to do some work. I'm, I'm absolutely, I think you're a fascinating man and a wonderful human. I thank you so much for giving up two hours of your time. I would be oh, honored no to do another session again in future. And as I said, I just feel this is the start rather than the end. Same here. And thanks for taking care of my friend, Dominic. You know, he's had quite the adventure. So anything we can uh, help get the word out there. And I think I call him my corporate healer because I think it's about getting the message out to um, restore ethics and integrity into all systems. Yeah, so that's my it's, last statement, it's, so. it's scarcely fathomable, his story. And I just love the fact it's been put into a book, The Corporate Undertaker, which is a great read. And I'm constantly promoting yeah, that it one. Is. It is. Um, my, my new friend, it's been such a pleasure. And as I said, this is the start of the journey. Same here, Oliver. You're, you're our hope for the future, how you're going to learn from this and raise that baby. You know, I can retire someday when your child is, a, a, you know, an empathic uh, therapist, you know, who's able to do this work and you know, help her own children heal someday. They're our hope for the future because they they do this 10 times faster than adults do. Wow, you know, they're incredible. able to do amazing work. So keep up the good work with the child. And thank you for your work, Oliver, and for the invitation. It was a pleasure. The Natural High. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.